0: My name is Matt O'Sullivan. I'm the youth director here at Christ Community Church. Um, It's good to be with y'all, and uh, um, it's good to have a laugh um, as we get into our our word this morning. As Jonathan said, too, um, it's a passage a lot of us know, at least for one verse in it, but but it does have some weight to it. So if you would turn in your Bibles to First Peter chapter three, we're going to pick up in verse eight and press on through verse seventeen today. And as we're continuing in our study, just to catch us up, this passage really is a bridge between two major sections in this letter. It's wrapping up this section where Peter is talking about how God's love um, defines the way we interact with people in a variety of relationships, and then it's going to open up the question of suffering in the Christian life, and, a, and that's a question we're going to hear a lot about and wrestle with a lot in the coming weeks. And so just to remind you, remember that, that Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are scattered throughout Asia Minor, which is a major section of the Roman Empire that's modern-day Turkey. There are people who have received the good news of the gospel. There are some churches there, but... They've, uh, they've been given new life in, in Christ, and they have a living hope in Him, and Peter was reminding them of the indicative of the gospel, the truth, the reality of what God has done for them. Um, and then we've also talked about how that indicative give, gives rise to the imperative, how they should then live. And so last week, we had talked about um, how that applies to marriages, and the week before that, we talked about how that applies to the way we think about government, and we think about work, even when um, our employers or our government isn't very kind to us or very just or fair. Peter called us to live a certain way in light of God's love, and he tied all of that to an example of Christ and the way he lived his life for us. But now, again, we're coming to this summary statement of the characteristics that Peter has been talking about. He's saying, all of you, regardless if you're married or not, regardless if you have a job, regardless if you really have much to do with government at all, these are the kinds of things you should cultivate in your heart. And then... With that in mind, he'll shift his attention to the major theme of suffering as God's pilgrims in this world. He'll take us down into the veil, as it were. But before we dive into this text this morning, it would be helpful for us to do some self-examination and to to take stock of of where we are, because the characteristics we're going to read about in verse 8, it's listed, and whenever you come up with a list like this in the Bible, it's really easy just to kind of zip right through it and not really take time to stop and to think, you know, what's this word mean? What's that look like in my life? And what about this one? And what about this one? And why are they put together this way? And so we need to take it slow so we can see how meaningful this is and how much we need these characteristics and how great it is that these are the kinds of things that God wants to grow in our hearts. And so let's consider then the following question. Based upon how you live, what would others say is most important to you? And would they say that you live as one who has hope in Christ. This question forces us to kind of stop and, and reflect upon our lives. It's not about what we say is most important to us. It's all about what our lives declare to be most important about us our habits, our patterns, the way we spend our time, our money, our resources, all of these things, not just our words. And it's not about what we say is most important to us. It's about what others can see looking at us, observing us, that is most important as expressed by how we live. So John Calvin, he gets uh, he gets at this in his commentary on First Peter. He says, For they who prattle much about the gospel and whose dissolute life is a proof of their impiety, they not only make themselves objects of ridicule, but they also expose the truth itself to the slanders of the ungodly. For the defense of the tongue will avail but little except the life corresponds with that. Translated and simply put, Calvin's saying that our lives say more than our words, He's saying that if you're someone who talks a big game doctrinally, but you're a, you're a jerk to people, you know, people can recognize that and say, well, that's, that person's a hater, I don't care what they say, their life is telling me more than whatever words they're using. And so he's saying the most astute words, the most correct doctrine, all of this is worse than hot, empty air if our lives don't correspond to the words we're saying because then it just sort of gives the world reason to think badly of Christians, of the church, of Christ, of the gospel. You might even be like, dude, you know, if you're gonna talk about that, then why would you quote Calvin? Like, Calvinists are the worst. They seem to have the worst reputation. And I think that is helpful to think about because it shows, you you know, Calvin himself is someone who says, no, you can't just, you know, be really imposing with your doctrine and people. You know, Calvinists may have a certain reputation in the theological world and being domineering in conversation, but Calvin himself, um, while he had his flaws... He's saying your life matters. It's not just about your words. And yet you can see how over time the way people who have taken his name upon themselves have just blurred the way his reputation is perceived in the world. And then then think about how a lot of us sometimes feel uncomfortable about calling ourselves Christians. We almost kind of want to tweak it. It's not that we're ashamed of Jesus necessarily, but we're like, I'm not a Christian, or at least not one of those. Like, I'm a Christ follower. I'm a disciple. You know, we want to tweak the word because that title is so loaded with baggage in our world that we don't wanna take it upon ourselves. There's been so much bad behavior done under that name, that the reputation that the lives lived under that guise is no longer good and not necessarily something you wanna be associated with. And so this gets then at, at a topic, um, Cameron's challenged us to think a lot about it, and we've talked a lot about it at our church, which is the world is always forming an opinion of us. And by extension, they're always forming an opinion of our God based upon, in both cases, the way we live. And so what's most important to us, it becomes especially apparent when we suffer, when things go wrong and seriously wrong. Like we can talk about the joys of being a Christian when we're getting a fat paycheck every two weeks and our family life is refreshingly peaceful and our grass is green and it doesn't kill your allergies, like life is good and we'll wear the T-shirt. But what happens when you lose your job or fight causes a rift in your family or your stuff gets trashed or your allergies or your health just goes kaput? How do you carry yourself then? What suddenly becomes most important to you? And what's most important to us when we interact with people who disagree with us? Do we come across as sort of snide lawyers who just want to paint people into a corner with our logic chopping and our arguments? Do we come across as the self-righteous type who, you know, we have an answer and a code and just a system for everything, and anyone who trips it up and, like, steps across a laser beam of the security system, like, we're just going to snipe them and throw rocks what's most important to us when someone persecutes us wrongly or attacks us or accuses us or maligns us is it being right is it setting the record straight is it just making the discomfort go away whatever we have to say even if we compromise the truth and so asking ourselves all of those questions it can it can be unsettling and uncomfortable but it's so necessary if we're going to cultivate our lives as disciples of Christ if you ever um, been backpacking for example one of the highlights of my Boy Scout career was going to Philmont Scout Reservation, which I think like caught fire recently. So I don't know how it's doing, but it's yeah. out in New Mexico and it's a big deal. Like the elevation change coming from flat little Delaware and going out to New Mexico and a mountain range that comes off the Rockies, like that's a big difference. And so you can't just get on a plane and go. You have to start doing what they call shakedown hikes. and you like the flat little parks in Delaware and you get your cardio up and you see like, am I able to do this? Where are my weaknesses? Is it in my legs? Is it my my cardio or my lungs gonna take it? You have to take stock and see where am I at? How is my health? And in the same way, spiritually speaking, as we ask these questions, we take a look at our hearts and see like, all right, what idols have crept in? What is most important? How do these characteristics we're about to read about, how do I need them? How do I need to lay myself before the Lord in prayer and and devote these things to prayer over time that I would grow in them by God's grace? Because the key truth we're gonna see today is that as Christ pilgrims, we are called to have a ready defense that is expressed not through words but through godly character and that is anchored in our living hope so that we can bless others even when they persecute us. There's a lot there, and you don't just do it by just deciding one day, I'm gonna do this. It takes preparation, it takes discipleship, it takes cultivation over time. And so let's turn um, to the text then, and we're we're gonna jump into verse eight and read through verse 12 and see the pilgrim's character in suffering. So if you would, follow along with me as we hear the words of our God. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So again, just looking right at verse eight, these characteristics are foundational for everything that's going to follow. These are the things Peter's saying that if you're going to live as a pilgrim in this world, if you're going to be able to endure suffering, if you're gonna live out this calling of being a blessing to the world, these are the things that you need. These are the things that you need to love your spouse well, to be a faithful employee, to be a good citizen. And he starts out with unity of mind, which means that we as God's people are devoted to one thing together. We're a big family and we have a variety of spiritual gifts, a variety of vocations and callings, but we're united in one purpose, which is being disciples who make disciples, cultivating in ourselves and in the next generation love for God and love for neighbor, all for God's glory and for the life of the world. What that means then is we we can disagree about how to interpret this Bible passage or that one, we can disagree about doctrine sometimes, we can disagree about music style. sometimes, we can disagree about politics and sports, movies, food, and whatever other kind of things tend to divide us up in the world, but as God's people, we are called to have unity of mind. We we are called to remember and to strengthen and devote ourselves to the fact that we are united in one purpose, the great commission that Christ has given us as His church. That's so important for us to realize because what that means is that what unites us in this room this morning is not the fact that we're American citizens. It's not the fact that we may, uh, by and large, tend to come from similar socioeconomic backgrounds, even if that's not even true this morning. The point is those aren't the things that make us most like each other. What unites us in this room this morning is what unites us to people all around the world, people who live lives very differently than us, who live maybe on a fraction of what we spend on coffee every week. And yet we are united to them in a much more beautiful and true sense than we are with someone who does not know the Lord in America because we are united by the grace of the Father, the righteousness of Christ, and the presence of the Spirit all poured out upon us as God's redeemed and beloved children. These things unite us with God's people from every tongue, tribe, and nation and all throughout history. They unite us in the common purpose of being disciples of Christ. And that's something that is beautiful. It's something Christ died for. It's something we're called to protect and to preserve and to treasure. And to do that, then, we need to have sympathy and brotherly love and tender hearts. And those things have to go together. Sympathy means we step into one another's stories. And we're present in each other's lives. We're there in moments good and moments bad. We're there to do life together. And brotherly love, which Peter talked about in chapter 1 back in verses 22 through 25, um, this is a key theme he brings up over and over again. He says, as God's people, remember, he paid attention to what Jesus said. They will know you by your love for one another. And he calls us to do that sincerely and earnestly. And then he talks about having tender hearts. And that one's really important. It doesn't mean, you know, we hear that and we often think of something sappy. And it doesn't mean you have to sniffle every time you watch a Hallmark movie or like your voice cracks when you hold a kitten or a puppy. He's talking about being people whose hearts are not stone cold dead to the pain and the misery and the suffering and the anguish that fills so much of the world and so many of our hearts. We're called to be people who make other people feel safe and heard and cared for because we're willing to take time to lean in, to learn their stories, to mourn with them when they mourn and to rejoice with them when they rejoice. So it means to have sympathy and brotherly love and a tender heart. And then lastly, we're called to have a humble mind, and that this one comes last is so important because Peter understands human nature, and Peter understands himself as someone who often struggled with putting himself at the center of the story and then flopping, of course. But it's so easy that anytime we see some growth in ourselves, like, man, I really love that guy well. I didn't really think about myself. Never mind that you're thinking about yourself a lot now. Like, it's really easy to get proud about anything, even... Our growth in godliness and so Peter's saying you know you need to have a humble mind don't make this all about you and humble mind though it's also not a mind that constantly says it to itself you're nothing much you're just a worm don't forget that that's not true and that's not humility a humble mind is a mind that forgets itself because it's focused upon God's glory and it's focused upon the good of others And the word Peter uses here is interesting. It was not a word that was virtuous in Greco-Roman culture. It was actually a word that was used to kind of talk down to people. It was referring to low-mindedness. So, you know, someone who didn't have the leisure to contemplate the higher things, as the philosophers would talk about. It was someone who didn't really have an opinion worth hearing. And Here, Peter takes that word and he flips it on its head and he says, no, actually, this is something you should cultivate, which reminds us that these characteristics flip our nature on its head. It's the upside-down kingdom of God overturning the world and its ways and our selfishness in our hearts. and saying it's not about you. It's not about just making yourself happy. It's about seeking God's glory and seeking the good of others. And as then we look at verse nine, we see exactly why Peter focuses on these characteristics because our calling in the kingdom of God is very specific and it requires these kind of things in our hearts. Our calling is to not repay evil with evil or reviling with reviling, but instead to bless to bless even those who curse us. In Christ, Peter's reminded us we have an imperishable inheritance, we have access to the throne of grace, we have God's grace and his mercy, and we are called to give those things away, to pour them out upon those who need them, to call them to know this God. As Peter told us back in chapter two, verse 21, he said, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And then in explaining our calling here, Peter quotes several verses from Psalm 34, which we heard from this morning in our call to worship. And in this Psalm, you have to know David wrote this, and he's describing the blessed life, a life in which we guard our tongue and lips from speaking evil and deceit, a life in which we seek peace and pursue it. like It's something that's important to us. We pour ourselves out in trying to make peace in the world. And yet you have to know, David wrote that psalm in a very low point in his life. He wrote it when he was on the run from Saul. He wrote it actually when he was acting a fool in front of a hostile king to try to spare his life. And the interesting thing, too, is that Saul was doing everything he possibly could to kill David. And everyone in David's company of of soldiers would have been like, man, if you have a shot to take this dude out, just do it. You're the new Lord's anointed." But David was like, but that man, no matter what he's done, he was still anointed as God's king, and I will not do it. He refused to return evil for evil, even when he had multiple chances. And that ought to seem crazy. If it doesn't, it just means we're too familiar with the story. But think about it. Saul is trying to kill David. David has a chance, and he doesn't do it, even though it might mean he might die instead. And guarding our words and seeking and pursuing peace, it all sounds great and we can get behind that for sure. You know, you might think of it as one of those plaques you put up in your home against some shiplap or something a la, you know, fixer-upper style or something. But this is not just sentiment. These aren't just words. This is something that, that pushes back against our sensibilities. Because most of us, if we're honest, we all have that point in our minds where we're like, man, if someone says that to me, or worse, to someone I care about, like my friends or my wife, I, they better step off because I'm going to go off on them. I don't know what I'll say, but it doesn't matter. They've crossed the line, and you can forget about what I'm me guarding my words at that point. Or you might say, you know, you bet I'll pursue peace, but those people over there, they made their choice, and I will have nothing to do with them. They're on the wrong side, so you can forget about them. And you say, no, 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 I, I, I don't have that. But push comes to shove. You look at the way you live, you look at the way you think, in your heart of hearts, a lot of times we all have those lines. And Peter is saying, no, you don't get to draw those lines anymore. You're not the arbiter of justice. You're not the dispenser of God's mercy. You don't decide who's in and who's out. Because Peter's reminding us, he's saying, look, Christianity, it's not just a side, which is so important for us in our cultural moment now. We're not just one side, and all of these massive debates just ripping through our culture right now. It's all, Christianity, it's all about Jesus. And Jesus is the only hope we've got in this crazy little world of ours. He's not just one option or just one side you can pick. And so that means we can't reduce the gospel to a certain set of policies or stances on issues. We can't use it as a lens for a modern day witch hunt determining whose whose character we're gonna scrutinize and whose character we're gonna ignore. What makes Jesus different And the calling we've been given in him different is not that Jesus is just the right side or he's on the right side. What makes Jesus different and good and true and wonderful and worth following with our whole lives is that he says both to victim and to perpetrator, come to me, ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So blessing people in the world as Christ's disciples, it means we come to them and we call them to come and to drink deep of the living water that is found in Christ alone. And that looks different for different people. If we're interacting with someone who's more of a victim, someone who's been the victim of abuse or injustice or has just had a rough go in life, it looks like helping them see there's really a God who cares about you and who wants to know you and who says to you, you are worth my love. Come to me. And as someone who works evil in this world, either against others or against us, it looks different. It looks like refusing to do evil to them in return, even though we want to calling them to repentance instead. And calling someone to repentance, it's not like you stand there on a podium, you're like, I hereby call ye to repentance. And then they don't come, because of course that's weird. But you know, we wanna do it just like that, where you just do it in one moment, and then you can kind of brush your hands and walk away. But calling someone to repentance often is relational. It's leaning in, it's hanging tough, even when they're not really wanting to be around you. Insofar as you're able, you continue to befriend them, you pray for them daily. And if possible, you do whatever you can in order to help them know Christ and be set free from their sin, their guilt, and their shame. Obviously, there there are certain situations where that's not possible. And so Christ and Peter, they're not calling us to be fools and and stay in an abusive situation or anything like that. But a lot of times, we cut ties so quickly because we're making it about our egos and whether or not we're offended and whether or not we're comfortable. And so, as Edmund Clowney explains really helpfully, he says, Christians are free from vindictiveness because they trust God's justice, but they are free for blessing because they know God's goodness. So, the amazing thing is that in Christ, we are set free from things and for things. We're set free from sin and death and Satan and shame, and we're set free for being a blessing in the world. We're set free from worrying about whether justice will be done because we know the Lord our God is the judge of all the earth and he will do what is right in the end. But think about what happens when we get vindictive and we take justice into our own hands and we set out to make sure someone gets what they deserve. At bottom, what assumption is driving our actions then? Usually it's the assumption that if we don't do something, nothing's gonna happen at all. We think like, you know, if I don't bop you on your nose, you're gonna get away with taking my Legos or whatever other stuff you've taken. You know, and if I don't fire back with a sharper insult, you're gonna get away with saying whatever you want about me and other people, and worse, you're gonna think that I'm some sort of stupid, witless wimp, and I couldn't think of anything good to say. But notice that there's another assumption that's beneath the assumption. You know, if we assume that our vindictive action is necessary for justice to be served, then we are assuming that God will not himself ensure that justice is done in the right way. We're assuming that we need to do God's job for him and on top of that, we're assuming that we even would know how. So it's worth us asking, what assumptions determine the way you respond to evil and mistreatment? And on top of that, what are you cultivating in order to live out your calling to be a blessing in the world? Because the assumption we ultimately need to meditate upon and to to see worked into our hearts through the means of grace is that the Lord our God is paying attention to us Think about that. The God of all creation is paying attention to you. That should be an enormous comfort for us in all of life, and especially when we're undergoing unfair suffering or injustice. I mean, have you ever had the experience of trying to get someone's attention? And obviously, we all have. This is the distracted age. Our eyes are always glued to screens. Our ears are always plugged up with earbuds. And so think about how beautiful the imagery is here that he quotes from Psalm 34. The eyes of God are upon the righteous, his people, and his ears are open to their prayers. He's not distracted. We're rarely fully present with each other, but God is saying here, I'm paying complete attention to you, my children. But this might also make us nervous. Because we might not exactly want God to pay such close attention. you know. What if he doesn't like what he sees? Or what if I'm not righteous enough to be the righteous that, is, that are being talked about in this psalm? And I mean, for me, I can think of a hundred ways I've fallen short just in keeping my tongue from evil this week alone. And that makes me uncomfortable. I mean, stand up here and preach about this and just to read it and study it and think about it all week long. And it's so easy then to read things like this and cower in fear and shame And so we must remember two things. First, we have to remember that God's love for his people is not caused or changed by their righteous living. God's love for his people forgives their unrighteous living and enables and grows over time their righteous living. That's so important for us to know. And second, if there's anything in us then that causes us to feel uneasy or guilty or ashamed, when we consider God's attention being upon us, then these are the things we should come and run boldly to God's throne of grace and throw them down at His feet in repentance and receive the grace and mercy that we have in Christ. The point is that in Christ it is truly possible to turn away from evil and to do good instead. Again, not because we're awesome and not because we have a lot of willpower, but because God is merciful and gracious and all-powerful and he will finish what he started in us. And it's also important for us to know too that the blessing that Peter's talking about in general here isn't only limited to eternal salvation. We often turn it into a zero sum. Like it's all about, am I saved or not? Am I on the right side or not? But he's also, and probably even mainly and primarily talking about the blessing we experience in our day-to-day lives, now, in the present. So when we struggle with our words or pursuing peace, it's not that we lose salvation, you know, because we dog cuss someone in traffic. But we will lose for a time the experience and joy we have in our salvation God, as we saw last week when talking about the dynamics of marriage and a husband who maybe is not loving his wife in an understanding way, God may hinder that man's prayers not to be vindictive, not to be twisted, but in order to draw that man back to God himself and back to his wife in a godly way. It doesn't mean the man's no longer saved. It means God in his mercy is disciplining and growing his child. And the same thing applies Here. That reminds us then, too, that the blessing we're talking about is not the absence of suffering. It's not materialistic. It's not measured by your bank account. It's not measured by your stuff. It can't be defined or described on some sort of social media profile with a lot of nice pictures. In Psalm 34, as we heard in the call to worship, David goes on beyond what Peter quotes here, and he talks about the fact that both the righteous and the wicked suffer in the world. And the difference is that God is with the righteous and they will not be condemned, but they will be redeemed. And so, blessing is not measured by the absence of suffering, blessing is measured by the presence of God. And that is what Peter is trying to help us see here. He's not telling us to be the biggest band of pushovers in the universe who don't do anything about evil. He's saying when you are reviled and when evil is done to you, do something about it, but do something worth doing. Don't revile in return. Don't add to the evil and suffering in the world, but bless. Do something worth doing, something for God's glory and for the life of the world, something grounded in unity of mind in sympathy and brotherly love tender tenderheartedness and humility of mind. Do something that Christ has called you to do. Amen. So let's turn back to the text with all of that in mind. And we'll see it now as Peter builds on this in verse 13 um, through 17. And this is now, again, as he's gonna start to descend into the the valley with us and really start talking about suffering in the Christian life. So if you would, read along with me. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, And so in this passage, we've come upon the the passage that has the banner verse for every apologist who's ever lived. Um, So apologetics, if you don't know, it comes from the Greek word uh, apology, which doesn't just mean, hey, I'm sorry that I kicked you in the shin or something. It means a defense. Um, So famous philosophical work is um, Socrates' apology, his defense of why he was being a turd to the entire Athenian city. Um, Or in this case, you know, Be ready, be prepared to make a defense, that is, have an apology to anyone who asks you for a reason. That's where the word apologetics comes from. And notice, though, right away, that this passage, you read it in context, and it seems a little different from what most of us picture in our minds and think about um, when we are doing apologetics. This verse comes in the context of a passage about suffering when we're doing good and we're not deserving that suffering. It's not like we're being punished for breaking the law. Peter's talking about how we should respond when the world reviles, mocks, mistreats, and maligns us for being Christians. We're to defend the hope we have in the midst of suffering. And so the scenario he's talking about for these people is that their lives, they're falling to pieces because Rome hates your guts. And maybe the suffering's not coming, but it sure seems like it could be on the horizon. It's a possibility. And so they might be facing the fact that their stuff might be plundered, their house might be ransacked, They might be kicked out of town, and certainly they'd probably be walking down the street, and people would turn away in disgust and whisper all kinds of nasty things, but whisper them just loudly enough so they could hear. They're not liked in the world, and yet they keep on living. More than that, they're living. They're not glum, they're not defeated or bitter, and there's some sort of spark of hope in them that no emperor, no centurion, no Roman legion can seem to stamp out. How on earth can that be? That is what Peter's calling them to be prepared to give a defense for, that kind of hope. How can someone live with that kind of hope even when everyone in society is making their life a miserable hell on earth? But so often we reduce this, we reduce having a ready defense, not not about explaining the hope we have in our lives, If we make it all about having all of the answers to make the intellectual conversations and debates we have, just make them go away. We want to load our guns with silver bullets so we can silence every atheistic argument or Darwinian argument or whatever kind of argument thrown our way. And there's a lot of good that that can come from reflecting upon these questions um, and thinking how we'll respond to intellectual challenges about Christianity, whether they come from philosophy or science or pop culture. There's some good there but that's not the primary thing that Peter's talking about here. Peter's point is not that we're supposed to defend the faith or make believing in God seem more rational. His point is that in a world that seems to give every reason for abandoning all hope, ye who live here, which is all of us, he's saying in that kind of world, you need to be ready to defend the fact that you have a real living hope. And so why is it? Why do we have hope? We have hope because Jesus is Lord. Why do we get out of bed in the morning? Because Jesus is Lord and he fills your life with meaning. He counts the hairs on your head. He bottles up your tears. He knows your sorrows. He gives you your daily bread. Why do you put thought into the way you raise your kids? Because Jesus is Lord and he has said, let the little children come to me. Why do you work with integrity? Even when no one's watching, even when everyone else is taking shortcuts, you work with integrity because Jesus is Lord and you work not for your boss but for him. Why do you love your spouse? Because Jesus is Lord, and he loves his spouse, the church, with the fiercest, most loyal, most wonderful love the world has ever seen. Jesus is Lord, therefore death will not have the final say, therefore sin will not have the final say, therefore no human being will have the final say. Our shame, our mistakes, our brokenness, our failures, our hypocrisy, these will not have the final say, because Jesus is Lord, and he has overcome the world, and he has brought us home to God. And Jesus' reign has implications for the entire universe. There is coming a day, an actual day, when the creation will dwell in harmony and worship of God. Gone will be pollution, gone will be senseless death and suffering, gone will be strife, gone will be greed, corruption, slimy politics, inequality, injustice, fake food, and so much more that causes us pain and misery in this world. And the world groans for that day and if you feel at all dissatisfied with anything in your life, with anything in this world, you groan and long for that day, and praise Jesus, he is Lord, and that day is coming. That's what it means to be ready with the defense for the hope within us. It means being willing to say Jesus is Lord, and being able to say why that's the best possible news, and you can't wait for him to come back. You don't have to be super um, just in the know with philosophy or science and ready to tango with Richard Dawkins. You just have to know who your king is and why his reign is the best thing the world ever has heard. And notice that we're called to do this with gentleness and respect and with a clear conscience. How we live, again, how we live matters. That's why Peter started with our character and that's why our defense is expressed through our character, the way we live, and it's anchored in our hope, the reason why we live. And it's all for the purpose of being a blessing in the world, not winning arguments, not looking smart, bringing glory to God and seeing enemies and lost sheep come home and become family. And so notice, too, again, then, that Peter begins and ends this section of his letter with the issue of suffering when we don't deserve it. And he first mentioned this back in chapter 2, verse 20, when he was talking about Roman servants and their masters, He's saying, look, serve, serve your masters even when they are unjust to you because Christ has set you this example. And his exhortation is consistent throughout the whole letter. He's saying the world's injustice, it does not grant us a free pass to do evil in return and to stop doing what God has called us to do. That's why he says it's better to suffer for doing good if that is God's will than for doing evil And when he mentions God's will, that can raise a whole host of questions for us. Like, why would God allow this to happen to me? And the the grammatical structure of that statement, it's called the optative, if you want another $50 word to put in your back pocket. But the point is, Peter's not saying that this is normal. He's not saying that God's up there in heaven and he likes making his people squirm and suffer under the magnifying glass like an ant bully. What he's saying is that God's will is clear. He's called you to be a blessing. He's called you not to return evil with evil. And so if obeying that calling means that you will suffer, then you know what you have been called to do. You may not know why these circumstances have come, but you know what God's called you to do, and you know he is with you. And so again, although there are questions we may have, this is not meant to make us uncomfortable or squirm. It's meant to comfort us that God's will is over your life and that though the times may get tough, though the suffering may come, God is with you and his eyes are upon you and his ears are open to you. And you know you can have the confidence that you are living the life he has called you to, even when it doesn't match up to the life the world thinks we all need to have. That's scary, it's really scary. And so we should ask ourselves, what do you fear what, what do you really fear? The kind of things that you wake up at 2 a.m. in a fright and a cold sweat and, and that's what's making you panic. And then in turn, how are you cultivating your hope in Christ? And there's so many things we could fear, a diagnosis, someone leaving us, not fitting in, not meeting some goal, having some sin we've done come out and define us. And I think at bottom, a lot of these amount to how much of a grip does the fear of man have on your life? And I'm not just talking about, you know, uh, being afraid of people being offended by the fact that you're a Christian. You know, like that kind of fear where you're like, oh, man, if I say Merry Christmas to the wrong person, like, what if I get in trouble at work? Like, political correctness aside, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the kind of fear that keeps us from living like people who have hope in King Jesus, a king who has smashed the reign of death and who has cleansed us from every speck and smear and stain of sin upon our hearts. I mean, I can think of so many moments in my life when I've sinned by way of omission, when I've not done this and have withheld the message of the gospel because I was afraid of what someone would think about me. You know, I could say like, oh, you know, I just, I don't know, I didn't, don't think I had the words to say. I need to read another book. That's ridiculous. I have too many books. Um, You know, I could say, oh, it's just that I'm timid. Um, I'm a wallflower, and I am, I I freak out at parties. But that's no reason to disobey what God said. At bottom, it means I just love myself too much, and I've made it all about me, and I'm too infatuated with my own reputation, my own comfort, and my own lack of conflict to dare to risk and to obey my Lord. So maybe you have similar struggles, maybe you have similar regrets, similar fears, but praise Jesus, those sins are forgiven for you and for me if we're in Christ. We've got to then look at the situation and look at our fears deeper. Why do we hold back the words of life from those who need it? Why do we try to live an aerodynamic life in the world, a frictionless existence that doesn't create any sparks or cast any ripples in our path, but also that isn't being much of a blessing, not even to ourselves? And at root, so often, is because we are very, very afraid, afraid of others, We're afraid because we wrestle with unbelief and we suffocate in the love of self. So listen to what Edmund Clowney says about our fear as he points us to Christ, our hope in this. He says, to break the throttling grip of fear, we must confess God's lordship with more than mental assent. We must confess it with our heart's devotion. Setting him apart as Lord means bowing before him in the adoration of praise. A praising heart is immune to the fear of other people. Fear of another sort takes possession of our hearts and minds, a fear that does not flee in terror but draws near in awe and worship. And the Spirit of Christ, given from the throne of glory, worked in Peter all in reverence for his Lord and Savior. Filled with that awe, Peter scorned all that men might do to him. In prison, he could sleep securely. On trial, he could accuse his accusers. And his secret was not simply that he had been with Jesus, but that the Lord Jesus was with him. So when Peter talks in verse 14 and 15 about be not afraid and be not troubled, his solution is honor Christ the Lord as holy in your heart. In other words, remember who is king. Remember who holds your life in his hands. Though man will so often try to make us feel like we squirm beneath their opinion and their power, Jesus says no. Any authority anyone has in the world, they only have because it's been given to them by the Father. He said that himself to Pilate. And He lived it out, and the suffering still came for him, but the joy on the other side of that was immense, and it meant the life of all of us here, because we've been redeemed by his obedience, and his righteousness, and his perfection. And this question, what do you fear, it loops back around to the first question about what's most important to you based upon the way you live. These are sort of flip sides of looking at the same thing. Again, there's a lot we can do just sort of in examining our hearts in this, and it can be heavy, and so I think the way to start is just as Peter says here, honor Christ the Lord as holy, which is a good and a wonderful and thing, it's a gift, and so start there this Lord's day. Take joy in the fact that you've been given a day you can rest, you've been able to be in worship. We're about to sing again and worship this great king. Take joy in the fact that no matter what's going on in your heart, no matter how long it may take to sift through all of that, this day you can be in God's presence as his child. And you can take the rest of the week and you can sort of hash through those questions. You can do it in conversation with each other and through prayer. But it starts with knowing your king and knowing how much he loves you. And so we see then that 1 Peter 3, 8 through 17, it teaches us that we must bless others even when they persecute us by having a ready defense that is expressed, one, through godly character Again, by how we live, not just what we say, not arguments we can make, but the way we live as disciples. And then two, that is grounded in our living hope. Hope knowing that God's eyes are upon us, his ears are open to us, he's paying attention to us and he loves us. And he will hold us through thick and thin no matter what may happen in our lives. And so with that kind of hope, with that kind of confidence, let us turn to God in prayer this morning as we prepare to worship him again. Oh Lord, our Lord. Uh, We give you thanks, O God, um, that you are so gracious and you are so merciful, Lord. You are Lord Jesus. You reign over this earth, and there are so many ways we we can just think of ourselves, never mind what the world says, but we who who believe in you, so many reasons we can think of that make us doubt your reign. Um, We know, Lord, from your word, from the book of Hebrews, that often it doesn't look like you're reigning, but we know you are. We know you are with us. We know you've sent your spirit to dwell in us, and so we give you thanks. Lord, would you hear our prayers, even the ones we can't utter ourselves? Lord, would your eyes be upon us? Would you draw us to your throne of grace daily, that we would receive grace and mercy? Lord, would you make us ready as your disciples in this world, that we would be those, Lord, who are humble and devoted to you and devoted to others, that we can bless when reviled and cursed and mistreated? Lord, it's hard, and we will never do it perfectly, but, Lord, will we do it faithfully, um, growing in in our ability to live out as disciples by your grace. Lord, I give you thanks for all the people in this room. Would you grow us together as a community, as a church, Lord, as a family, that we would be present in one another's lives, having sympathy for one another, Lord, having tender hearts to take the time um, to be present with each other, Lord, that we would grow together in our readiness, Lord, to explain why it is we have hope in you in this world. And again, we give you thanks for your gifts and your love, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen.